0: Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Tom Hartman, now with David Broncaccio, The New York Times, Democracy Now!, and Countdown.
1: We've been talking throughout the program really as as a theme for all practical purposes of the day about what happens when the when the levers of government when the power of government is very real gets corrupted by the power of corporate power I'm talking in the first hour about the neocons who really think that's how it should be and then the oil companies and uh, we finally figured out how to play this this clip I just uh, Dwight D Eisenhower we had a caller earlier who mentioned I invoked Eisenhower's name and I just I just this is you could, you could replace military-industrial complex with oil uh, governmental complex, if you wish. But keep in mind that the Pentagon uses almost as much oil as all cars in America. I mean, it's the second largest consumer of oil in the United States. So it really is kind of all of the same thing. Here's Dwight Eisenhower talking about this. And this is his farewell speech in
2: 1961. Our military organization today... Bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea.
1: You see, what he's pointing out is that we weren't making tanks when World War II started. We had to we had to go to General Motors and Chrysler and say, Hey, stop making cars, start making tanks.
2: Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry.
1: None. Imagine
2: none. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. And we did. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions.
1: And this is where Eisenhower gets a little spooked.
2: Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone, more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience.
1: And it literally was. We have never seen anything like that before, and some would say it has taken over our our government and our country.
2: The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development. Yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society.
1: And then Eisenhower turned to the camera and said, very seriously,
2: In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes.
3: In D.C. this week, an unusual hearing led to some disturbing revelations about those in charge of managing our, that is, the public's natural resources. You know the Department of the Interior. They're the cabinet-level bureaucracy that manages federal lands, including national parks, and negotiates oil and gas leases for drilling on that property. While much of what the department manages may be gorgeous, to hear the department's own inspector general tell it, things inside the department are getting ugly.
4: You solemnly swear that the testimony will...
3: Earl Devaney is the Interior Department's chief watchdog.
5: I do. Simply stated, short of a crime, anything goes at the highest levels of the Department of Interior. Inspector
3: General Devaney gave members of Congress an earful on Wednesday about what he's been finding in his
5: ongoing investigation. Ethics failures on the part of senior department officials taking the form of appearances of impropriety, favoritism and bias have been routinely dismissed with a promise of not to do it again.
3: In Devaney's view, many troubles center around a man named J. Stephen Griles, a lobbyist turned Deputy Secretary of the Interior. Prior to becoming number two at the Department of Interior, Griles had been a lobbyist for the National Mining Association and Shell Oil, among others. Now, looked into the close relationship between Griles and big energy companies in a broadcast three years ago. Watchdog organization Friends of the Earth put Kristen Sykes to work on his record.
6: Concerned that an industry insider was now in charge of the nation's natural resources, Sykes read and researched everything she could get her hands on about Griles. She also filed Freedom of Information Act requests, which eventually turned up Greil's appointment calendars for the first 17 months he was on the job. It proved to be a revealing paper trail.
7: This is over 10 pages of energy meetings that he's had since he's been at the Interior Department. You don't see meetings on what are we going to do about our visitor center that are crumbling in our national parks. You see meetings with Alaska officials about drilling in the Arctic. You see meetings about oil and gas development in Wyoming. And this is not an agency that is created just to implement the president's energy plan. It's to protect our public lands for future generations.
3: This week, Devaney testified that he had his eye on Griles for years. In a 2004 report, he called him, quote, a train wreck waiting to happen, identifying 25 potential federal ethics violations. He met with then Department Secretary Gail Norton about what he saw as the trouble with Griles.
5: Former Secretary Norton met with me at length and indicated that she had accepted this official's admission that he had exercised bad judgment, but given his promise not to do it again, she was unwilling to take any action against him.
3: Griles wasn't at the hearing, but has repeatedly said he did nothing illegal. Two years ago, he resigned from Interior and returned to lobbying. At the hearing, Devaney also underscored another major problem, mistakes on leases struck with oil and gas companies on federal lands and waters. These lapses let energy companies avoid paying potentially tens of billions of dollars in fees to the U.S. Treasury. Royalty payments due the government for the right to drill off the Gulf Coast. Now senior correspondent Maria Inahosa investigated the bungling of those leases this summer.
6: They say the devil is in the details. The details in this law, it turns out, generated some enormous loopholes. When oil went over $34 a barrel, the companies were supposed to start paying royalties. But a strange thing happened on the way to the bank. The Interior Department, under President Clinton, forgot to put in those price limits for about a thousand long-term leases granted over a two-year period. According to a draft report from the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, the estimated cost to taxpayers from this government goof is $10 billion. That's $10 billion in royalties that the U.S. will not be able to collect because they weren't included in the lease agreements. And it gets worse. Not only were there loopholes and missed revenues because of poorly written leases, insiders say the oil and gas industry is doing almost anything it can to avoid paying the full royalties they owe.
3: What I do do... At the hearing this week, Devaney said officials at the Interior Department hid information about the leases for six years. Billions of dollars in revenue had been lost. Was anybody fired over this?
8: No. Was anybody suspended over this?
3: No. Was anybody reprimanded over this? Not yet. What critics find especially troubling is this. Devaney testified that in spite of the ethical lapses, bungled leases, and billions lost to the taxpayer, he says the changes necessary to fix the system haven't happened. Can you describe the revisions that have been made in the internal communication and managerial systems uh, to prevent a similar mistake or incident?
4: Um, my, my honest belief is none.
5: <laughs> <That's it>. <laughs> <laughs> wow. none.
9: So I know bad Close my eyes and I count to ten Hope it's over when I open them I want the things that I had before Like a Star Wars poster on my bedroom door I wish I could count to ten Make everything be wonderful again hope my mom and I hope my dad Will figure out why they get so mad I hear them scream, I hear them fight They say bad words and make me wanna cry Smile, I feel better when I hear them say everything will be wonderful. Summer says, Mean everything, when you're little and the world's so big. I just don't understand how you can smile with all those tears in your eyes. Tell me everything is
8: wonderful. Back when Republicans didn't control Washington. Jude Wanneski proposed the two Santa Claus theory as a solution to their image problem. You can't win elections by simply vowing to shrink government, he argued, because that just makes you look like the Grinch. To compete with Democrats promising benefits to everyone, you have to offer your own goodies in the form of tax cuts. The Santa Claus strategy worked, and the Republicans' reputation for generosity has only grown thanks to President Bush's tax cuts and middle-class entitlements. But now the party has another image problem. Republicans are looking like moral Grinches, or more precisely, the church lady, the scold who makes even fellow congregants roll their eyes. They're the party whose leader defends the sanctity of embryonic stem cells against scientists trying to cure diseases. They're the killjoy who stands up to object when a gay couple wants to marry. They're so shocked by gambling, imagine, Americans betting money, that the House has just passed a bill outlawing most online wagering, and federal agents have arrested a visiting British executive of a sports betting operation that is perfectly legal in his country. Even before there were lottery tickets at gas stations and casinos on reservations, savvy politicians realized that gambling was a vice to be denounced but mostly ignored. They generally didn't raid bingo nights. They didn't try to stop people from playing poker in the privacy of their homes, but that's the hopeless mission undertaken by the righteous right. So far, Republicans have staved off gay marriage, but over the long term it's another losing cause. Younger voters already are turned off by what they perceive as the party's homophobia. As the public gets used to seeing happy couples exchanging vows, the taboo against gay marriage will ease, and Republicans will be remembered as priggish wedding crashers. When conservatives pushed for welfare reform by preaching the work ethic, they connected with mainstream voters of all ages. When they opposed abortion, they appealed to a substantial number of Americans. Even many people who called themselves pro-choice could sympathize with Republican efforts to put some limits on abortion. But protecting a cluster of cells the size of a grain of sand is not what most voters think of as a traditional family value. Embryonic stem cell research is so popular that even some conservative Republicans voted for the bill, allowing it to be federally financed. Bush's veto this week kept in place the ban on federal funds, pleasing religious conservatives, but they'll never be able to stop this research. In fact, their opposition is probably a boon to the researchers. Even before this week's veto, anger over the ban has prompted states and private philanthropists to put up their own money. They've committed well over $3 billion to this research in the next decade, which might be more than Washington would have provided anyway, and the federal money would have come with strings attached. Stem cell researchers can benefit from the freedom enjoyed by scientists who develop in vitro fertilization, which Washington also refused to finance because it was originally denounced as immoral. The absence of federal involvement sped progress by allowing unregulated private labs and clinics to innovate. Given the other sources of money for stem cell research, including private companies that see potentially lucrative profits, there's no pressing need for Washington to get involved. And as long as some Americans, a minority but a passionate minority, oppose the work, there's no reason to force them to subsidize it. The result would just be more pressure for Washington to impose restrictions on what researchers could do. So even though I have no moral qualms about the research, I think Bush's veto was good public policy. But it wasn't good politics. He tried to present it as a defense of life. He even used that old campaign ploy, posing with babies. But he couldn't compete with the images of paralyzed adults asking for help. As the baby boomers age, it's not smart to be known as the party that won't pay for medical research. It's not smart to have Michael J. Fox and Nancy Reagan blaming it for blocking cures for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, or to be remembered as the party that ignored Christopher Reeve's pleas before he died. No matter how moral the church lady tries to sound, she'll never I win am, an argument with Superman, Superman in a wheelchair. I am Superman, and I, know what's I am, I am, I am
9: Superman.
4: I love everything you do but the stuff about about uh, Bush and Cheney and all their gang, these bunch of gangsters, all we have to do is understand that they love our love the country as much as we do and they think they're doing the right thing. I'm sorry Tom but so did Hitler. So did M- Mussolini. What we need to They do did. Is inform people.
1: They did, John. Hitler and Mussolini really believed their own rhetoric. They actually what? believed their own rhetoric, and that was the, one of the big problems. I mean, I lived in Germany for a year. I talked to a lot of Germans, and they said, oh, well, you know, I said, why didn't you stand up? Why didn't you do something? Oh, because everybody just figured he was a silly little man with a, with, a, with a mustache. He looked like a cartoon character. Everybody made fun of him. We never took him seriously.
10: You, well, you that's can't, hope. You, you've that's, got to take
1: these guys seriously, and if you don't believe that they actually have some kind of a belief structure, that they can actually go to bed at night with some sort of congruence, some sort of intellectual and emotional and political congruence, if you don't believe that, you can't take them seriously. You can't take them seriously. You can't defeat them.
4: But I do I take them seriously, Tom, but what we've got to do is educate the people as to what they are.
9: Yeah, I, I'm, they I'm they are. right and there the with fact
4: you. Is, It can all add up. It can all add up to they believe in what they do. And they believe they can lie, cheat, steal, and do whatever else in the name of what they call a god. And they do. But in the end, they're evil. That's what these people are. They're fascists and they're evil. And that's what they've done to this world. Here's where we get to the problems of
1: definitions. I mean,
4: they're
1: they're basically taking the same position that Edmund Burke did in the 1790s, that John Adams did in the late 1790s, that Alexander Hamilton did in 1787, when he stood up and gave his opening speech before the Constitutional Convention and said we should emulate aristocracy because there's never been a more stable form of government formed. They believe that a small ruling elite, with the appearance of democracy but without the reality of democracy, will produce the most stable kind of country, and that instead of ruling elite that is hereditary like they have in europe that we should have a ruling elite that is a meritocracy in other words it's calvinism reinvented you know god's blessing is demonstrated by riches the people who have the most money are the people that god loves the most and these guys believe this belief system and and instead if we if we simply call them evil you're going to get people from the other side going wait a minute Uh, my guy isn't evil but when you expose how they're thinking and you expose what they're saying then you get people from the other side going well i don't think that way yeah, and, then and, we, fine, and then we can wake up people. But
4: the, but the biggest thing about it is they're liars, they're thieves, they're killers and they're gangsters. That's what they are. okay that I, I won't disagree with
1: any are. of those characterizations, John. but those, those characters those characterizations are also not the core of what they are. At the core what they are is conservatives and and they're and conservatives. Oh, I don't beliefs.
4: believe that Tom. I don't believe they're conservatives, Tom. Um, then, how
1: are you defining conservatives, John? John? Oh, the phone just croaked. Okay, we, we lost John. I'm sorry, John. Um, if you're saying, if you mean that they're not conservatives in the Mulderberry, Goldwater and Dwight Eisenhower and Everett Dirksen, I agree with you. I agree with you. Those guys weren't conservatives either, I, w- I would say, in the classic mold. If you want to know true conservative philosophy, go pick up a copy of Russell Kirk's book in 1950, his 1953 book, The Conservative Mind, uh, which which is, by the way, the book that got Barry Goldwater started and that got William F. Buckley started and has been essentially the Bible. And he's, his opening chapter is about Sir Edmund Burke in the U.K. Sir Edmund Burke, who said, "It does." I'm paraphrasing now, um he, was, he said it does me no viol- no harm if a man is allowed to engage in as servile a profession as hairdresser or tallow maker, candlemaker. Doesn't no problem if they have that job. But it does considerable violence to society if such a man is allowed to participate in governance. In other words, to vote, to run for office. The, 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 Russell Kirk in nineteen fifty three saying a society must have orders and classes. That that religion must be used as a way of controlling the way people think. That's conservative.
7: There's a growing movement in this country to challenge what appears to be an increase in racial profiling at airports. More and more travelers are wearing T-shirts that say, we will not be silent in English and in Arabic. Why? Well, about two weeks ago, Iraqi activist and blogger Ra'ed Jarar did the same thing as he was boarding a JetBlue Airways flight at Kennedy Airport here in New York. Airport officials forced him to change his T-shirt before getting on the plane. Democracy Now! spoke with Ra'ed Girard 10 days ago about the incident.
11: Then I was supposed to take my airplane, my JetBlue airplane from JFK to um, to Oakland in uh, California uh, last Saturday. So uh, I went to the airport in the morning and uh, I was prevented to go to my airplane by four officers uh, because I was wearing this T-shirt that says we will not be silent in both Arabic and English. And I was told by one of the officials that wearing a T-shirt with Arabic script in an airport now is like going to a bank with a T-shirt that reads, I am a robber.
7: That's what the security said to you?
11: Yeah, I was um, questioned by four uh, officials from, um, I think some of them were from JetBlue and others were um, maybe policemen or FBI, I have no idea. I, I took their names and badge numbers and I'm, um, I filed uh, a complaint uh, through ACLU against them uh, because um, uh, I, w- I asked them very directly to let me go to the airplane because it's my constitutional right. As a U.S. taxpayer and resident, to wear a T-shirt with Arabic script, and they prevented to let me exercise this right, Uh, and they made me uh, cover the 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 script with another T-shirt.
7: So they said you could not fly if you wore your T-shirt that said, "We will not be silent." Mm -hmm. They
11: said that very clearly.
7: Iraqi blogger Raed Jarar. We called JetBlue, the company responded with a statement saying that according to the airline's preliminary findings, the request to remove Ra'ed's T-shirt was not made by a JetBlue crew member. We also called the Transportation Security Administration. They confirmed a TSA employee was involved, along with two JetBlue employees, in talking with Ra'ed. But they said it wasn't the TSA employee who bought Ra'ed the T-shirt to change into. Well, since our interview with Ra'ed, major newspapers and corporate TV networks in the United States and around the world have picked up this story. Now more and more people are putting on the We Will Not Be Silent t-shirts in solidarity when they travel. Lori Arbeiter is one of them. She joins us in our firehouse studio, a member of the Critical Voice, an affinity group of artists against the war who organized the We Will Not Be Silent t-shirt campaign. The woman behind the man, you gave Ra'ed the t-shirt he wore that day? Yes, I did, Amy. When did you start making these t-shirts?
12: We began the campaign on March 20th, 2006, which was the third anniversary of the war in Iraq. Why? Um, Well, uh, we decided that uh, we needed to, as artists and activists, we needed to um, respond to what was going on in this country and... Uh, to what we see as an illegal war and occupation of Iraq. And so we designed the T-shirts and actually also a flag uh, that said, uh, no allegiance to war, torture, and lies. And we brought it out into New York City uh, for eight hours on March 20th. And that was the first day of our campaign.
7: How many people have gotten your T-shirts?
12: Oh, it's of several thousand now, at this point, and so many more are requesting the t-shirts from all over the country and all over the world.
7: Now, they're not just in Arabic and English, are they?
12: No, we also have them in uh, just in English, in Spanish, and in Farsi. And we're getting requests for Hebrew, and we're thinking of bringing them back in the original language that the statement was made, which was German.
7: But you went further. Um, you actually got on a flight with this t-shirt after Ra'ed was told he couldn't wear that t-shirt
12: on the flight. Yes, we did. We um, heard the story, actually, it broke on Democracy Now!, and we heard it, and we immediately all met. Uh, There were four of us, and we were appalled to hear what happened to Ra'ed. I know him. I'm the person that gave him the t-shirt, originally in Washington, D.C. And we felt we needed to respond and do something and stand, to stand in solidarity with Ra'ed. So we uh, bought tickets um, on JetBlue to go to Washington, D.C., and we flew on the 24th of August. So you just flew a few days ago. What happened? Well, we, um, we went to the airport, we met and picked up our tickets, and then we proceeded to the gate. At moments, at times, we were actually uh, separated, we dispersed, we were, you know, and then came back together to go through security. Uh, we, there was no incident, actually. We did not get stopped. Um, we went to the gate, we waited there, and we got, boarded the plane. And um, the irony is that we were actually assigned to the seat that Ra- Raid was moved to um, after he was moved out of the seat that he had been assigned well, to.
7: wait, because that part of the story is not told very much. Uh, Raid was forced to put on this other T-shirt to cover his that said in Arabic and English, we will not be silent. Um, You've been giving out this flyer, Is It True Blue?, Uh, that ends uh, by uh, talking about the authorities telling him they can't be sure what it says in Arabic, and they can't get a translator, so he would not, even though in English it said, we will not be silent. How do you know when he went on the plane, uh, he first got the front seat, then pushed to the back?
12: Um, Actually, I spoke with him and um, I think he's also written that um, in his blog. He was then called after having put on the other t-shirt and waiting to board the plane, he was called back to the desk and he was told that he would not be in his assigned seat uh, that he had booked a month before and they moved him to the back of the plane. Um, And we happened to be assigned to that same seat that he wound up in.
7: I talked to someone who wore the we will not be silent t-shirt without the Arabic and flight attendants were coming up to him. What does it mean? What does it mean? You said your thing of translating also into the original German. What is the original, um, the origin of this?
12: Well, the original statement was made by a student resistance movement in Nazi Germany called the White Rose. Uh, They uh, tried to um, encourage the German population to resist the Nazis and Hitler by sending leaflets out into the German population. And the fourth leaflet they signed, we will not be silent. And that was why we took that statement and translated it into those four languages that we wear today.
7: Lori Arbeiter, um, if people want to get more information about this growing movement against high-flying profiling. uh, Where can they go?
12: They can write to us at silent at gmail.com. I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. This is Democracy
7: Now, democracynow.org.
13: Friday, September 15th, 53 days until the 2006 midterm elections. It's unacceptable to think. Sounds like something straight out of George Orwell's 1984. Instead, it was something straight out of George Bush's mouth. Our fifth story on the countdown, that massive pre-election struggle Mr. Bush had engineered over national security having gone horribly wrong. Not the Democrats defending now themselves against Republicans, but rather the President having to do so. And not only issuing those chilling words, it's unacceptable to think but doing so in answer to the call to conscience from his own former Secretary of State, Colin Powell. Having lost round one over his proposal for the interrogation of terror suspects with the Senate Armed Services Committee just yesterday, Mr. Bush subjecting himself to an interrogation today at the White House Rose Garden. In the course of the news conference, the president pretty much playing chicken with Congress, threatening to abandon all U.S. efforts to question terror suspects unless the Senate sees fit to rewrite Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions. You know, the part that prohibits the cruel and inhuman treatment of detainees. Mr. Bush also rebuking his former Secretary of State for not believing exactly what he wants him to believe
10: mr
8: president former secretary of state colin powell says the world is beginning to doubt the moral basis of our fight against terrorism if a former chairman of the joint chiefs of staff and former secretary of state feels this way don't you think that americans and the rest of the world are beginning to wonder whether you're following a flawed strategy
10: if there's any comparison between the compassion and decency of the american people and the terrorist tactics of extremists it's flawed flawed logic it's just it's just it simply can't accept that it's unacceptable to think that there's any kind of comparison between the behavior of the united states of america and the action of islamic extremists who kill innocent women and children in understand to, to achieve an objective uh, dave He's back. Sorry, I've got to get disentangled. Wrong, would you like me to go nice. to somebody else here? to no.
13: <laughs> Sorry.
10: But take your time, please.
13: I really apologize for that. Anyway. Um,
10: I must say, having gone through those gyrations, you're looking beautiful today, well, Dave.
13: Mr. President, critics of your proposed bill on interrogation rules say there's another important test. These critics include John McCain, who you've mentioned several times this morning and that test is this if a cia officer paramilitary or a special operations soldier from the united states were captured in iran or north korea and they were roughed up and those governments said well they were interrogated in accordance with our interpretation of the geneva conventions and then they were put on trial and they were convicted based on secret evidence that they were not able to see how would you react to that mm-hmm. as Commander-in-Chief? Um, David, my reaction is is that if
10: the nations, such as those you named, adopted the standards within the De- Detainee Detention Act, the world would be better. That's my reaction. We're trying to clarify law. We're trying to set high standards, not ambiguous standards. And I, I, let me just repeat, Dave. Um, we can debate this issue all we want, but the practical matter is if our professionals don't have clear standards in the law, the program is not going to go forward. You cannot ask a young intelligence officer to violate the law, and they're not going to. They let me finish, please. They will not violate the law. So you can you can ask this question all you want, but the bottom line is, and the American people have got to understand this, that this program won't go forward if there's vague standards applied like those in article common article three from the Geneva convention she's not gonna go forward now perhaps some in Congress don't think the program is important that's fine I don't know if they do or don't I think it's vital and I have the obligation to make sure that our professionals who I would ask to go uh, conduct interrogations to find out what might be happening or who might be coming uh, to this country i got to give them the tools they need and that is clear law but sir, this is an important point and i think it, it the point i just made is the most important point okay and that is the program is not going forward david you can give a hypothetical about north korea or any other country the point is that the program is not going to go forward if our professionals do not have clarity in the law and the best way to provide clarity in the law is to make sure the detainee treatment act is the crux of the law that's how we define common article 3 and it sets a good standard for the countries that you just talked about next man i know you think it's an important point <laughs>
13: sir with respect if other countries interpret the geneva conventions as they see fit as they see fit you're saying that you'd
10: be okay with that? I am saying that I would hope that they would adopt the same standards we adopt and that by clarifying article three we make it stronger we make it clearer, we make it definite and I will tell you again David you can ask every hypothetical you want but the American people have got to know the facts and the bottom line is simple if Congress passes a law that does not clarify Uh, The rules, if they do not do that, the program's not going forward. This will not endanger U.S. troops. Next man. David, next man, please. Thank you. Took you a long time to unravel, and it took you a long time to ask your question.
13: Time to call in our own Howard Feynman, who, of course, is also the chief political correspondent for Newsweek. Howard, good evening. Good evening, Keith. I realize there was a lot more to that sentence, but can the leader of the free world ever, under any circumstances, let alone in answer to his own former secretary of state, begin a sentence with the phrase, it's unacceptable to think?
5: Well, it was remarkable for a couple of reasons. First of all, I talked to John McCain last night. People like McCain and Powell and a lot of other serious people, Republicans, are very concerned about the torture rules because of America's moral standing in the world and because of what David Gregory was talking about in terms of captured American troops in other countries. The The other thing is, whether you like it or not, whether the president likes it or not, there are probably hundreds of millions of people around the world, especially in the Muslim world, who would agree with what Colin Powell says, and it's a fact of life on the planet even if the president doesn't think anybody should be thinking that way.
13: The president, on a purely domestic level, was, in effect, threatening to pack up the marbles, uh, take his ball and go home. If the Senate does not do things exactly his way, what happens, as we have some indication certainly could happen, if the Senate says, okay, we're calling your bluff?
5: Very good question. I think uh, if they do do that, the president will take it to the country in the fall elections and try to accuse the Democrats and even some of his own party members, by extension, of uh, being weak in the face of terrorism, but his critics can come back and say, look, there are other ways to do this. There are other people who can do it. And uh, if you're so concerned about it, you can proceed on some other basis. Uh, I think in the end there will be a deal. There's a possibility of a filibuster in the Senate. I don't think it will happen. I think there will be a deal. I think the language will be fuzzier than the president will want, but it will be approved by Congress somehow.
13: So the idea of shutting down the CIA interrogation is, although, a a loud threat, not necessarily a firm threat?
5: I don't think it's a firm threat. I think they'll find their ways. I think think other things could happen, although it's interesting to speculate. If it doesn't pass and if these CIA officers who are afraid of getting sued don't do the interrogations of the detainees, Maybe somebody with immunity, uh, further immunity, could maybe maybe the vice
13: president or somebody, <laughs> and, and bring his uh, bring his uh, hunting materials with him. <laughs> right. if, if you're the Democrats, how do you take? Uh, what do you, what take do you position yourself in in this kind of showdown? Other than sit back and watch the opposition employ? I mean, do you just stand aside for this?
5: I think you stand aside for the most part, and the reason why you do is it's not just John McCain, a known maverick. It's not just Lindsey Graham, Senator Graham, a known maverick. Uh, It's not even Colin Powell, who's very popular in the country, but sort of outside the system right now. The key guy here is Senator John Warner, Mm -hmm. the Republican of Virginia as well as colin powell the thing about warner is he is the establishment man he is the very symbol of the pentagon establishment the defense establishment in a way the intelligence establishment over there in northern virginia and if he is taking the side of the rebels on this the republican rebels it's a very serious division in the party and the ones that one that the the democrats will
13: just sit back and watch last question quickly does the president do himself a favor when he appears as angry as he did at that news conference today
5: not really but he's not really speaking to the people i think he's speaking To history, and he's speaking to himself in the sense that he's trying to explain how he may be a martyr to the political cause here. He may lose this election, but he's going to do it going down the way he wants to do it. He does believe in this, and he's talking to himself and to history as much as the American people at this point.
9: Town, but I had no money So I visited my Uncle Sam And it told me I had a plan I could see the world for free
1: February 27th February 27th, it started when the government in the midst of an economic crisis received reports of an imminent terrorist attack. A foreign foreign ideologue had launched feeble attacks on a few famous buildings, but the media largely ignored his relatively small efforts. The intelligence services knew, however, that the odds were he would eventually succeed... Warnings of investigators were ignored at the highest levels, in part because the government was distracted. The man who claimed to be the nation's leader had not been elected by a majority vote, and the majority of citizens claimed he had no right to the powers he coveted. He was a simpleton, some said, a cartoon character of a man who saw things in black and white terms and didn't have the intellect to understand the subtleties of running a nation in a complex and internationalist world. His coarse use of language, reflecting his political roots in a southernmost state, And his simplistic and often inflammatory nationalist rhetoric offended the aristocrats, foreign leaders, and the well-educated elite in the government and media. As a young man, he joined a secret society with an occult-sounding name and a bizarre initiation ritual that involved skulls and human bones. Nevertheless, he knew that the terrorist was going to strike, although he didn't know where or when, and he had already considered his response. When an aide brought him word that the nation's most prestigious building was on fire, He verified it was the terrorist who had struck, the terrorist who he had been warned was going to strike, and then rushed to the scene and called a press conference. We are now witnessing the beginning of a great epic in history, Adolf Hitler proclaimed, standing in front of the burned-out Reichstag-Gebüge parliament building surrounded by national media. This fire, he said, his voice trembling with emotion, is the beginning. It is a sign from God. He used it to declare an all-out war on terrorism and its ideological sponsors, a people, he said, who traced their origins to the Middle East and found motivation for their evil deeds in their religion. Two weeks later, the first detention center for terrorists was built in Iranianburg to hold the first suspected allies of Marius van der Lube, the infamous terrorist. In a national outburst of patriotism, the leader's flag was everywhere. Even printed large in newspapers suitable for window display. Within four weeks of the terrorist attack, the nation's now popular leader had pushed through legislation in the name of combating terrorism and fighting the philosophy he said spawned it that suspended constitutional guarantees of free speech, privacy, and habeas corpus. Police could now intercept mail, wiretap phones. Suspected terrorists could be imprisoned without specific charges and without access to their lawyers. Police could sneak into people's homes without warrants if the cases involved terrorism. To get his patriotic, quote, decree on the protection of people and state, end quote, passed over the objections of concerned legislators, he put a four-year sunset provision on it. Immediately after passage of the anti-terrorism attack, his federal police agencies stepped up their program of arresting suspicious persons and holding them without access to lawyers or courts. In the first year, only a few hundred were interred. And those who objected were largely ignored by the mainstream press, which was afraid to offend and thus lose access to a leader with such high popularity ratings. Citizens who protested the leader in public, and there were many, quickly found themselves confronting the newly empowered police's batons, gas, and jail cells, or fenced off in protest zones, safely out of the earshot of the leader's public speeches. Within the first months after that terrorist attack, at the suggestion of a political advisor, Adolf Hitler, this is just our history lesson for the day. Adolf Hitler brought a formerly obscure word into common usage. He wanted to stir a racial pride among his countrymen. So instead of referring to the nation by its name, or as the fatherland, as it had often been called, he began to refer to it as the homeland, a phrase publicly promoted in the introduction to a 1934 speech by Rudolf Hess. Rudolf Hess said, Dank Ihrer Führung. Dank, thank you, Ihren, uh, your uh, Führung, leadership. Thanks to your leadership. The homeland is here. Heimat zu sein. The Deutschland will become the Heimat, the homeland, for all the Germans in the world, for alles Deutsche über die ganze Welt, as I recall. Well, actually, here it is.
4: Dank Ihrer Führung wird Deutschland sein Ziel erreichen, Heimat zu sein.
1: Heimat zu sein.
4: For all the of the world.
1: as hoped people's hearts swelled with pride and the beginning of an us versus them mentality was sown our land was the homeland citizens thought all others were simply foreign lands we were the true people he suggested, the only ones worthy of our nation's concern. Bombs fall on others, or human rights are violated in other nations, and it makes our lives better? It's a little concern to us. Playing on this new implicitly racial nationalism and exploiting a disagreement with the French over his increasing militarism, he argued that any international body that didn't act first and foremost in the best interest of his own nation was neither relevant nor useful and thus withdrew his country from the League of Nations in October 1933 to negotiate a separate naval armaments agreement with Anthony Eden of the United Kingdom to create a worldwide military ruling elite with the U.K., His propaganda minister orchestrated a campaign to ensure the people that he was a deeply religious man and that his motivations were rooted in Christianity. He even proclaimed the need for a revival of the Christian faith across his nation, what he called a new Christianity. Every man in his rapidly growing army wore a belt buckle that declared, God is with us, and most of them fervently believed it was true. Within a year of the terrorist attack, the nation's leader determined that the various local police and federal agencies around the nation were lacking the clear communication and overall coordination necessary to deal with the terrorist threat facing the nation, particularly those citizens who were of Middle Eastern ancestry, and thus probably terrorist and communist sympathizers and various troublesome intellectuals and liberals. He proposed a single new agency to protect the security of the homeland. Consolidating the actions of dozens of previously independent police, border, and investigative agencies under a single central leader and department. Most Americans remember Hitler's office for the security of the homeland. The Reichsicherheitsstaubhump and its Schutzstaffel, simply by its most famous agency's initials, the SS. And As es tut mir leid for mein Deutsch for those who speak German. His assistant, who dealt with the press, noted that since the terrorist attack, radio and press are at our disposal. Those voices questioning the legitimacy of their nation's leader in the face of this new Department of Homeland Security. Those who were raising questions about his checkered past were now fading from the public's recollection as his central security office began advertising a program encouraging people to phone in tips about suspicious neighbors. To consolidate his power, he concluded the government alone wasn't enough. He reached out to industry and forged an alliance, bringing former executives of the nation's largest corporations, millionaires and billionaires, into high government positions. A flood of government money poured into corporate coffers to fight the war against the Middle Eastern ancestry terrorists lurking within the homeland and to prepare for wars overseas. He encouraged large corporations friendly to him to acquire media outlets and other industrial concerns across the nation, particularly those previously owned by these suspicious Middle Eastern people. He built powerful alliances with industry. One corporate ally got the lucrative contract worth millions to build the first large-scale detention center for enemies of the state. Soon more would, would follow. Industry flourished. He reached out to the churches declaring that the nation had clear Christian roots and that any nation that didn't openly support religion was morally bankrupt. In a speech on April 12th, he said, My feeling as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter! It points me to the man who once in loneliness surrounded only by a few followers was greatest not as a sufferer, but as a fighter. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and adders. As a Christian, I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. End of quote from Adolf Hitler.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. So I have another question for you. I, I didn't realize I did until I was just about to start recording, but I do, and this is this goes way back for me. This question, and it, it has to do with what you were just listening to. I mean, kind of gives you the chills, right? That, that Tom Hartman clip, and so don't tell anybody, but a couple of years ago, my very first uh, contact. With uh, the Young Turks, I hadn't been listening to them for very long. hadn't didn't really get to know them uh, or anything, and so my very first contact with them was uh, they they were the first um, the first radio show I'd ever called into, and I made a total ass of myself. You know, I, I broke the ru- you know all the rudimentary rules of being a caller, and just like I did a terrible job. But the argument that they were having was whether or not it is beneficial at all to make the present-day Republican versus Nazi comparison. And so remember, this is a couple of years ago, and, you know, a lot has happened since then, but essentially, they were all more or less agreed that it's not really beneficial. And now... um, Ben is more opposed to it than anyone else. He was talking, to, you know, there's no way it'll never happen here. We're not even close. We're not fascist. Nobody's getting thrown into ovens. Nothing like that. And um, and that that was the argument that really, like, ticked me off. Because, you know, fascism doesn't have anything to do with throwing people in ovens. And making the comparison to the Nazis, we're not saying that the Republicans are, you know, uh, well, not, they're not that brand of fascist. So when I called in, the point I wanted to make was um, I brought up this uh, this news article that was uh, written by, I, I don't know, the I, I forget his name. I think, Henry Wallace, but I'm not positive. And uh, it was written in, uh, it was like an op-ed piece in the New York Times, and Henry Wallace was the vice president at the time under FDR. And they were asking him, like the newspaper asked him these questions, and he responded. uh, And they just asked about fascism, like, do we have fascists in this country? How many what are they like, how are they going to try to take over, that sort of thing. And the way he described it was essentially by describing modern-day Republicans. But it had nothing to do with, you know, Uber, uh, you know, homeland, uh, you know, militaristic rule and, you know, killing people. It was all about taking over the media, uh, super... You know, patriotism, pro-war, things like that. I mean, everything that defines the Republicans now, that's what he was talking about. And so, the debate, for me, is, is it a worthwhile argument? Does it do us any good? And, you know, so Ben from the Young Turks was saying, if you throw that word out, it's a red flag. You know, everybody just immediately thinks of... You know the actual holocaust and we they say that you know we're calling the republicans murderers and things like it's so to me it's not like that and i don't mind making the fascism comparison when you take the word fascism by its definition you know the the merging of corporate and state powers and so on and so forth plus plus then you add in this uh Man, I, I feel bad if, I, if I'm getting this wrong. But Vice President Henry Wallace's analysis of what the American brand of fascism will look like. And he described, you know, 50 years before it happened, he described the present-day Republican Party. So that's kind of my take on it. But the counter-argument is, it's just not worth it. Using that name, or you know, that label, that word, it just... It's too abrasive, it stops the conversation, it doesn't move anything forward, it's not beneficial to use, even if it's correct, it's just not beneficial, and people are too easily you know, led to the next step of saying, you know, it's not just the merging of corporate and state power, but it's the concentration camps, and so on. I mean... Just Disregard for a minute that we've already started building concentration camps, but and not to mention Guantanamo, of course. But, anyways, just that basic argument I, I see the two sides, I understand both, and so just for fun, I'm putting it out there again. Another question I'd like some answers to. Uh, once again, if you like, you can email me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. Uh, if I get the chance, I will bring this back up on the show and read some emails. But what I really like is if you'd go to the forum, it's at BOTL, as in best of the left, uh, BOTLcommunity.com, and f- there's the message board. And then in general discussion, that's where all of these things will be posted. They'll have their own thread, <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, and so you, you let's start a conversation about it. That's so much better than just emails, because, you know, if I get a flood of emails, I just, I can't respond to all of them, I can't uh, read all of them, but if we get them on the message board, then everybody gets to read everything, and everybody gets to respond, and everybody has fun. So, um, so that's today's assignment. I'm very interested in this. This is another one of these, you know, like yesterday, about the media, the Nazi analogy, uh, argument goes way back for me, and, uh, and so I'm definitely interested to hear some some really reasoned arguments on both sides. I mean, it, you know, it's a heated topic, and people kind of get heated on both sides. But uh, you know, I just want to hear uh, what you guys think about it, what you ha- what you have to say. So uh, hopefully, if uh, if all goes well, I'll either be hearing from you or I'll see you in the forum or the message board those two phrases mean the exact same thing, so use whichever you like. And, uh, until next week, I will, uh, well, until next week, I'll just be having a good weekend, and I hope you do, too. So, have a good one, everybody.
9: I'll take you out in the open door. This is not my life. It's just a fun farewell to a friend. It's not what I'm
11: like. A Democrat, a Republican, Republican the Party,
4: whatever.
5: I'm
0: Frank Bruno. And I'm the professor, Matt Matske. Each week, we bring you a new episode of Bruno and the Professor, a podcast on politics from the great American West. Folks, are you tired of one political party that wants to take us back to the 50s and another one that wants to take us back to the 60s? So are we. Can you be a liberal in the land of wide open spaces? Can you appreciate freedom and individual rights and still respect the environment? Can you love the free market but still want to make sure every American has decent health care and a good education? We think you can. So sit back pop a beer, and shoot the breeze with Bruno and the Professor, because D.C. looks a lot different from the West Coast. Download
13: the podcast today at brunoandtheprofessor.com or look for us in iTunes.